90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? It's finals week. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, so you... <laughs> is this week finals week or is it the coming week that's finals week? This week is finals week for us. AGU is always finals week So for us lately. So this week's finals week. Um, I'm done with the finals, but the papers are rolling in. I'm drowning in research papers. Oh, <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I do remember that, that AGU and finals week coincided because I remember uh, being set down by my structure professor and having to take my structure final in the poster hall at AGU. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yes, that same structure professor was uh, there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yep. his, uh, his replacement was also at AGU, um, so that made for some interesting finals week uh meetings that we've had to have with him over skype so it's pretty funny (laughs) (laughs) and it seems like we always like the the left behinds always get stuck proctoring several exams we actually have people from the main office proctoring exams (laughs) because so many of us are gone at agu (laughs) yeah well i mean our office is relatively empty as well we have lots of folks out to agu Mm -hmm. and we are uh we're staying busy though uh, got a lot going on. And actually, just before this podcast airs, uh, I'm going to be freezing my buns off up at the Mesa Lab trying to help repoint some of our satellite dishes at the new GOES-16 satellite. Ooh, that's exciting. Outdoor work? Are you going to be okay with that? Or Oh, I'm fine with it. Okay, uh, just making sure. But... Didn't know if you'd forgotten already. <laughs> Oh, so it'll be uh, it'll be fun because the Go 16 satellite, you know, it's been out up getting checked out for a while now. They shut down the instruments, and over the last two weeks, it's been drifting to its new position, where it is going to replace Go's East. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the day before the show comes out, early in the morning, they're going to start turning the instruments back on. It's at its new position, and we need to find it, home in on it again, and start getting the hundreds of gigs a day flowing. That's exciting. That is yeah. exciting. I remember going to a field trip to a, a a little satellite farm outside of Norman. I don't think it's in operation anymore. And they let us move the satellite dishes around, and it was super exciting. <laughs> yeah. Although it was, you know, just a dial, but still. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's really Well, I mean, cool. this is uh, as sophisticated as using a DeWalt drill in a socket. Even less sophisticated than <laughs> Than the dial. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> well, they're geostationary, right? So Right, exactly. Yeah. So you shouldn't have to you shouldn't need that accessibility. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, but so beautiful. we we did that and uh also had the opportunity to go down to the Denver Zoo for zoo lights where they have lots of holiday lights as yes. different animals. Mm-hmm. Uh we did that ten years ago when we lived in Denver. Is it still spectacular? It is amazing. I, I tweeted a photo of a gorgeous animated octopus to our <laughs> friends over at Embedded. <laughs> uh, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's what's been going on here. But okay. uh, we have something exciting for the listeners, too, that sort of got tagged onto the front of last week's show. <laughs> something exciting for the listeners. We're not going to have a show this week. Is that what's exciting? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, no, something better than that. Something wearable. 
Swag. Yay. <laughs> Swag's the best. <laughs> so we have t-shirts. There are five different colors, and there will be nine days when, when you're hearing this to go get them. Uh, link will be in the show notes, but it's tblaster.com slash don't panic. So now and we're going to use any of the money from that to help pay the hosting bills and things around here. Help oh. keep the lights on at the Don't Panic World headquarters. <laughs> Where is that again? Yeah. <laughs> My basement, your basement. <laughs> it, it's in a dark server farm somewhere. Right, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Poor little guys. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's tblaster, T-E-E-blaster.com, just in case you all are wondering. Right, and these shirts look spectacular. Man, they really do. I'm super jazzed about it. I what color are you? Well, obviously we're all we're both gonna get all the colors, right? We have to. <laughs> I, I think it's required. <laughs> yeah, because exactly. you know most conferences are five days long, and there are five colors of shirts. So. It's perfect. <laughs> I appreciate um, that. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> and for those of you that do field work and are required to be bright uh we have yellow and orange we do the orange isn't safety orange thank goodness but that yellow is super bright <laughs> yeah and there's also a it's not hot pink but a pink one yeah that i love that really one. makes the logo pop out it really does that's super great it's probably really bad that whole red blue you know like red slide blue lettering but <laughs> it's pretty good yeah, so run over there, buy some for yourself, your friends, your family, random folks on the street. We Yay. would greatly appreciate it. Yes, yes, we would. <laughs> uh, also, we have more Don't Panic stickers, finally. Do we? I haven't gotten mine yet, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm we, assuming they're in the mail. We have been run out, right? yeah. but we, we have another, I believe, 300, so... Go ahead okay. and let us know if you want more stickers or didn't get stickers in the first place. We're happy to send them out. I've bought two computers since I last had stickers. <laughs> 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 so that's pretty impressive for me, I just want to say. <laughs> it's true, considering the one that you had before that was hey. Cretaceous. Uh, hey. <laughs> it functioned with the software I needed it to, okay? Uh. True. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and we've been getting some feedback this week as well. That's awesome. Yeah. So people are still listening. That's good. <laughs> it's true. Uh, <laughs> we had listener John write in and uh, told us that he enjoyed the show and said that he's listened to every podcast that we've made. He's fully addicted. And it turns out that on a trail... Uh, Bill's Trail, he's got this uh, little library, a sharing library out there, and it has a cowbell on it in honor of Don't Panic. I love it so much. <laughs> this is one of the coolest little libraries I've seen, too. That is super fancy. <laughs> yeah. So we'll put a link in the show notes. You can go check out John's pictures, uh, TallahasseeTrails.com, and see this cowbell and this yeah, little library. Yeah, it's super great. We're going to have to like pilgrimage there or something. It's true. I sent him some stickers so that uh, the cowbell can be decorated along with everything else. Oh, beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we also heard from listener Steve, who said that he 
has read a lot about waves, including a book by A.P. French, who's an MIT professor. Mm -hmm. uh, I have this book. It's called Vibrations and Waves. I wondered if you did. <laughs> I, I love it because the illustrations in this book, it's before you popped open Adobe Illustrator. Uh, so a lot of the illustrations are beautiful, hand-drawn illustrations. Oh, that's wonderful. What vintage are these books again? 70s. Okay. I didn't want to, uh, you know, date Steve or anything because he said he used them in high school. But <laughs> Yeah. And the uh, Sorry, Steve. The it's out I... how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the other thing that I really like about these is some of the concepts, you know, we're both big fans of physical demonstrations mm -hmm. of concepts. Mm-hmm. Some of the things, it was so hard to make a good illustration. It's a picture of somebody doing the classroom demo. I love it. It's pre-YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And it's yeah. a very, very readable. But there there are several books by uh, Professor French. There's a classical mechanics, special relativity, quantum mechanics, and vibrations and waves. That's awesome. I'm going to have to look into these. I'm assuming I can find them used, I'm guessing, somewhere. Right. So nice. Um, so yeah, Steve also asked about um, the advanced musical theory class that uh, I mentioned before, because that's the hardest class I've ever taken. Um, and so I used to be a really big band nerd, which is should be no surprise to anyone that knows me. <laughs> <laughs> no. um and my big deal though wasn't like classical music theory because i played saxophone so i played tenor sax in the jazz band and so we were like state champ jazz band for quite some time the the uh our band director grew up in st louis and he was an amazing uh trumpet player and so he had a really long pedigree of jazz musicians teaching him and so that was my that was my gig, and I played uh, in the concert band through college, but I gave it up after that because it was too hard to do. Uh, I tried to major in musics, music and meteorology and geology, and they told me no. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they said you should go to grad school. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's, where, that's where it sort of stopped, but I played in the concert band all through, uh, all through college, undergrad anyway. So, right. yep, that's how that's how far I made it to when I figured out, you know, while I was really good, I wasn't as good as I was in, say, geology. So here I am. Right. <laughs> and Steve also had an interesting question. He said he never had heard of Horst and Graben uh, yeah. before I mentioned it last week. And he said they look like waves, but is there anything wave-like in their formation? And my reply was, I need to pull out my copy of Jaeger and Cook's Rock Mechanics book. Mm-hmm or maybe a structure book, but my gut says that it's the thickness of the layer that you're stretching and deforming. The spacing of the Horst and Graben is going to be related to the flexural wavelength of that layer as it's stretched. Right, right. I mean, So it should be sort of wave-related, though it's not really a bending thing that's making the Horst and Graben. Right, exactly. But if you're just talking about sort of like frequency... You know, they sort of occur together in sort of a sinusoidal-looking frequency, I would say. Right. So I think it's going to be a thickness and material properties thing. Mm. But uh, that's something that I need to verify with one of the several 
holy books of rock mechanics? <laughs> that was a good question, though. That was a that was a really good question. I hadn't really thought of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So he also uh, says that we should talk about microwaves, which is probably a whole another five or ten shows, since we're both a little radar geeky. <laughs> it's true, and we have several radar geek friends that uh, yes yes we do <laughs> we should bring on yes <laughs> yeah absolutely but i mean you know microwaves is what a microwave oven does to heat food right the waves energize the little particles inside there and that's the whole definition of temperature right is the measure of kinetic energy of molecules so there you go exactly mm-hmm. yep all right well i think we should go ahead and continue our talk about waves but this week it's going to get a little weird yeah i don't want to continue it let's just keep talking about steve's email (laughs) Uh. (laughs) now i say this because this is going to be all jawed because this is yeah this is where waves get weird and um while i do have a math minor i haven't used it in quite some time (laughs) so we're going to try to stay pretty far out from the math <laughs> that's that's uncomfortable for you though it, it is yeah <laughs> exactly so how are we gonna get weird now well we're going to go into a whole other domain <laughs> this I, I think this sounds inescapably mathy <laughs> yeah <laughs> so last week we talked about waves that occur in time and or space so we'll just call that the time domain for convenience <laughs> Okay. Uh, but so let's say you're standing on the shore, like you said, you're standing on a pier watching waves last week. Mm-hmm. That's yep. time domain. Yep. Because over time you're counting waves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We can transform that data. So either we're dealing with a continuous wave that is mathematically known, or we are taking discrete samples of something in the real world. Uh, which we talked a little bit about the Nyquist-Shannon theorem last week. Yep. So we can take that and using uh, complex math in the literal sense of using eyes. Uh, <laughs> yes. To transform it into other domains that are useful for learning about and studying the wave and modifying it. Okay. And so the point of doing this is just to sort of look at it from a different angle essentially right or to do things that are very hard or impossible in the time domain okay all right great and so where we're going to talk about is the frequency domain and some of these math words look familiar it's coming back to me a little bit yeah (laughs) so last week frequency domain frequency was how many waves per second go past a given point okay mm-hmm. so that's measured in hertz so right. we said a one hertz wave would be one wave a second a 10 hertz wave would be 10 waves a second makes sense right uh so now what we're going to do is take our time series of data our our video of the waves or our sampling of audio that you're hearing right now and we're going to do some fancy math on it that we'll get to and we're actually going to break it down into waves of different frequencies that added together make the original waveform. So easily going back to 
the music theory thing, that's just like different notes that make up a chord, right? Sure. So a chord, let's say you've got three notes. Let's say you've got a C, E, and a G. You're playing a C major chord. Look at you go. (laughs) And (laughs) you, uh, you play those three notes together. Those are three distinct frequencies. Mm-hmm. that are all coming out at the same time, and they're stacking on top of each other. They get added through something we call the principle of superposition. Right, okay. And through constructive and destructive interference, the chord that you hear is formed. It's, you know, there's one waveform that your ear is sampling, but that one waveform is these three notes added together. So it doesn't look like any one of them individually. Right. But they're all three in there. All three components are still there. Right, exactly. And through math, you can work those things back out. Right. And so if you think about, you know, remember the old stereo systems where when stereo systems took up, you know, yeah, <laughs> the oh. whole cabinet? I, uh, I still got some of those speakers, baby. They're, uh, they're in tables in my, uh, <laughs> in my husband's <laughs> shop. <laughs> well... You remember the equalizers on those that had all the little sliders? So much fun. <laughs> so that, if you think of those as a graph, if you were to put a dot where each of those sliders was, okay, and the x-axis that runs along the chassis would be frequency, and then the y-axis would be amplitude. So if you wanted more bass, more of the low notes, you took the sliders on the low end, on the left side of your chassis, and you slid them up to boost the lower frequencies, right? What if we wanted more cowbell? <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I, couldn't I think res- there's a different slider. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So this makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember doing that. That is fundamentally the output that a lot of times we're looking at from doing this frequency decomposition. Okay. Or frequency domain analysis of waveforms. Okay. That makes total sense, really. Yeah, so what, what your stereo was doing is it was literally doing the math uh, yeah. in analog <laughs> electronics then, not in digital electronics at that time, mm-hmm. uh, to filter, which we'll get to, these different frequency components. And then the waveform that came out was, it was still a time domain signal because you listen to music in the time domain. <laughs> yes. Uh, unless you're in some bizarre world of flatlands <laughs> yes. that's frequency oh, domain. Oh, no, don't bring it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that, that's the principle of superposition. But now imagine if I told you that any periodic signal, so wave, of any shape at all could be represented by an infinite series of sines and cosines of different frequencies and amplitudes just added together. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's just like saying... This reminds me of those little brain games you used to play in, like, in elementary school, right? Like, make the matchsticks look like this, you know? And there was a whole bunch of different ways you could make this shape or something like that. I mean, it seems to make sense, right? If you added a couple of waves, you can make it look like any other signal. Right. And the, the most extreme example of this, I think, is a square wave. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So a square wave is off for some time and then on for some time, then off. So it's, it's just a bunch of box-looking things. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. 
that can be made from sines and cosines. Right, except not except. So you've got things subtracting from each other because, I mean, that box wave, it looks like a rectangle. It doesn't look like a wave, right? right? And so you just have to have those sines and cosines offset from each other, that signal offset from each other at certain places to cancel out to create that box wave, correct? Yeah, so the, the different frequencies uh, add up and you get a sharper and sharper corner until you get close to the square wave. So that that's the catch, isn't it? I said infinite set of waves. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's just like all those little rectangles underneath, you know, approximating when you're integrating under a function, right? You made up of infinite number of little rectangles. Yeah, it's, it's calculus. So Exactly. I mean, you take the limit, and in a real-life scenario, you end up approximating things. Right. Uh, so what you end up doing is getting close to a square wave. Mm-hmm. And that's but, good enough yeah. for government work. It's true. Uh, Especially so, for most engineering applications. Yeah, amen to that. Um, so, I mean, this makes sense. This isn't hard yet. All right. Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> we can go further, but I, I wanted to go back because th this process of taking a time domain signal and looking at the frequency domain is often called Fourier analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes that's that triggers some sort of recollection back here. <laughs> Actually, that's quite a lot of recollection. We talk about these a lot. <laughs> right. So <Yeah. laughs> this goes back to Joseph Fourier, but not really. Of. Yeah, and. <laughs> I didn't realize this until we were doing some more research for the show. And every time we research something for the show, we find out that nobody got the right credit ever. <laughs> uh. <laughs> there seems to be that like stall of crediting all the rich dudes that did, you know, philosophy in the 16, 17, 1800s. Like that's who gets all the credit. But just like with Fourier, that's not actually who invented this, right? Right, so he did take some steps, but the the first instance of uh, frequency analysis is the Babylonians. Okay, and they were uh, really good at math, so this isn't too surprising. No, in fact, they used a basic set of harmonic waves to make astronomical position tables. <gasps> That's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Some little uh, orbital mechanics there. Yeah, so you think about it, you have planets going around. It is periodic motion. Mm -hmm, yeah. So if you were to make a graph of the planet's position through time with relation to something, you get a wave, and you add all of these waves and perturbations together, and you just constructed the time series from a set of single frequency and amplitude waves. That's awesome. Yeah. So, what so did, Babylonians so, did it first, not ha, Simpsons. Take that. <laughs> so what did Fourier do? Well, Fourier was the first one to claim that any arbitrary-shaped periodic function can be represented by a sum of sines and cosines. Oh, okay. All right. Gotcha. Uh, there were some others before him, uh, Clairaut, Lagrange, Gauss, mm -hmm. uh, that had done pieces of this. So they would do things like the cosine transform. So they just look at the cosine terms or the sine transform uh, or representing certain special functions 
but he was the first one that put everything together and said you can represent anything with this. Okay. Yep. That seems. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he had to come up with some uh, cool math to prove this, correct? He did, and the reason he did it actually has nothing to do with signal analysis. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that's how science always works <laughs> right uh, he was just trying was, to heat up his burrito in the microwave right <laughs> <laughs> if there had been microwaves yeah uh, yeah so it was for heat transfer problems oh so he was okay <laughs> yeah uh, okay that's great so heat transfer is a tricky thing because mm-hmm. it's a diffusion process right right exactly and these diffusion equations are get a little ugly because Extremely. the answer depends on time and temperature across the space. Right. So you have a temperature profile across your metal rod that you're heating at one end in physics 101. Mm-hmm. And then one second later, the temperature of the distant different sensors along that rod is dependent upon what their temperature was and how much time has passed. Ah, okay. Yeah. And so th- the equation is not trivially separable. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, for any real life application, uh, there there are boundary conditions of okay, one end of the rod is stuck in a block of ice, <laughs> right. and the other end is heated. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can solve that analytically, but that's yeah. never the situation. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> that doesn't help in an industrial standpoint. Yes. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, AutoCAD did not make their money using analytic equations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. He wanted to do this to solve his heat transfer problems and came up with the math that can decompose these functions? Exactly. Okay. Uh, And because of philosophy, religion, mathematical, whatever you want to call math at some of these levels. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It actually actually works out beautifully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is one of those things where People that are early in their advanced mathematical careers hate it because you have to say, well, suppose that we guess that the solution looks like a series of signs. And (laughs) and you go, why would anyone ever do that? There are reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, and it's mostly computational, right? Because that's easy. It's true. So uh, to make a lot of these things computationally tractable, we have to do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what's really cool is... For a lot of calculations that we might want to do, it's way faster to take our data, shove it into the frequency domain, do our calculation on it, and then pull it back into the time domain and get our answer. That's pretty cool. I never thought about looking at it that way for that purpose. Yeah. So uh, say you're doing convolution uh, Mm -hmm. or as a more trivial example of convolution, say you're doing a running average. Right. Okay. You could say, I'm doing a three-point running average. So I'm going to take the first three points of my data, add them, divide by three. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move one point over. I'm going to take those three points, add them, divide by three. Mm-hmm. You could do that. If you have a data set that's a few billion data points long, that's really slow. Yes. Uh, yes. What you can do is take it into the frequency domain, okay. apply a filter that effectively does that, and then pull it back into the time domain, and it runs in a fraction of the time. All right. It's computationally trivial. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of assumptions. Uh, not really. 
I, but no. it sounds like it, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this is why this is so beautiful to use, because it's not. Right. So, you know, convolution uh, becomes multiplication in the frequency domain. Mm-hmm. Right. So multiplication is a very simple operation, and we know how to make machines that do it very fast. Yes. Mm-hmm. Convolution is slow in time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's okay. one of the reasons we do it, and... I am going to assert that basically every piece of electronic gear that you have sitting around you right now is using the Fourier transform inside. That's impressive. Uh, I mean, audio, definitely listening to this podcast, you are benefiting from the Fourier transform Mm -hmm. uh, because it's actually the basis of a lot of these compressed file formats. So when you're listening to MP3, or you are listening, or, well, yeah, most audio codecs, or you're looking at a cute cat picture that's a JPEG. How do you know that's what I'm doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the compression for that JPEG revolves around the Fourier transform. That's awesome. So we take things into the frequency domain, we remove redundant information, and then bring it back into the domain that we want to look at it in. So you make a good point here, too, that I think maybe some people don't think about. It's like, you know, this isn't different data. Like, those aren't different data. It's the same stuff. It's just looking at it in a different way and being able to switch back and forth between these domains, right? Like, you're not changing anything about the fundamental aspects of the data. Right. So do you talk about the weather conditions outside right now in terms of the pressure, temperature, and dew point, or do you just report one number that's the enthalpy? <laughs> is is this entropy, a choice? Is this a choice? Can we can we go to just talking about entropy? I mean, it would forecast. make for much more confusing weather <laughs> forecasts. Oh, that'd be great. I'd like to see these Oklahoma meteorologists take that one on. <laughs> So, but it's like you said, it's the exact same data. It's just a different viewpoint on it Uh, and a viewpoint that is, happens to come from something that's very mathematically elegant. Right. And I mean, so that's really, everything uses these things. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's in, in electrical engineering and computer science, especially uh, there's so much that's based on frequency domain see that's funny to hear you coming at it from that end because all i think of is all the seismic classes that i've had it's true so uh seismology obviously Uh, yeah (laughs) because that is signal analysis Uh, right exactly and taking your little waveform and scrunching it up and trying to make it fit you know these other waveforms so you can then apply it to your whole data set so it doesn't take 200 years to uh figure (laughs) or to try to crunch some of that data yeah, and so another example of this would be, let's say we're looking at a, uh, a gravimeter signal or an ocean tide signal. Let's even back away from the gravimeter. Ah, okay, nice. And you have a sensor on a, a bridge somewhere that is measuring the height of the water below the bridge. It's an ocean. And okay. so you're getting a tide signal, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. But as we know from listening to this show... Right. (laughs) There's more than just that diurnal tide signal, right? Yeah. So if you do a frequency analysis on that, if you take it into the frequency domain, look at a frequency amplitude plot, 
you'll say, okay, there's the 12 hour signal, there's a 24 hour signal, there's the spring and neap tide cycle, the monthly cycle. You'll see all of this and you can extract that information easily. It's not something you could easily get by looking at a time series. Yeah, exactly. And this is the same thing. I just got done teaching and am now reading all these uh, essays from our climate class. And so a big forcing on climate, so a big thing that drives climate, are orbital parameters. And it's not just one. It's not just seasonality but there's a whole bunch of orbital parameters that go into this eccentricity all that kind of jazz oh yeah (laughs) and so that's the same thing right yeah and i've even seen people take ice core records so gas that was stored in ice cores that they pulled out from deep beneath antarctica and get temperature projections and then run a frequency domain analysis on it and pull out things like this peak is the milinkovitch cycle yeah nice that's nice. We'll talk about the Milankovitch cycles in an upcoming show because that's a very interesting both history of science story and, you know, actual science story. True. Uh. <laughs> no, that's cool. Man, I'm so excited. Like, I thought that I wasn't going to understand any of this because you just said we're going to talk about the frequency domain, but I actually do understand it because I've used it all the time. I just haven't thought about being hard. So now, thanks, John. You've put this mental block that... <laughs> well and so you can make there's a a plot called the spectrogram yeah where the x-axis is frequency the y-axis is time (laughs) and the color of each pixel is amplitude uh so if you think of your our time our our frequency amplitude plot Mm -hmm. if you stand it up where you're looking at it from the top and color the waveform by amplitude and then you stack a whole bunch of those together, it's hard to envision. But what you're looking at is what frequencies are in a signal over time. So you're looking at the frequency domain in the time domain. That's cool. Okay. I guess I never, yeah, mm -hmm. that is an excellent way to describe that ridiculous graph. (laughs) Yeah. And so if you, if you say, uh, I did this one year at SciPy, I was in a one of their conference rooms. Do you ever hear those little, you know, hums? There's a, there's a transformer and a light that's going bad or one of those CFLs that's going bad. And all you can hear is that. So I have one of those in my office and inevitably anyone who spends more than a minute in my office comments on it. And I've already, my mind has already filtered it out. And it's so funny because everyone comments on it. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting in one of the rooms and I heard one of these things <laughs> and f- for kicks, I fired up audacity, the program we use to record this podcast, hit record, recorded about a minute of audio and then made a spectrogram and you could see, so there's in the vocal range, uh, you could see lots of variation because people were talking and discussions were happening and then way at the upper end, like out at 18 kilohertz, you saw this little bright line. <laughs> and that little bright line was the Fourier transform pulling out that one discrete frequency that was driving me nuts. Oh, that's awesome. Did you feel better just seeing that? Yeah. I mean, you could at least, <laughs> when you said there's a buzz and somebody said, I don't hear it, you can point to this graph and say, well. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then you get punched in the face. <laughs> 
This is Saipai. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> then everyone <laughs> gathers around you and says, cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I forgot. Not high school. <laughs> so you can actually do, as well, uh, filtering. Okay. Like my brain does with the... Uh, with the hum of my electric light in my room. <laughs> yeah. And this is something we do in seismology all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all kinds of noise in that. Well, because one person's noise is another person's signal, right? Absolutely true. So you can say, you can apply a, what's called a low-pass filter, which let's say I apply a low-pass filter at mm, 5 hertz. Okay. Anything below five hertz is going to come through and be preserved. Anything above five hertz is going to get destroyed or attenuated. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's say I had a signal that had some five hertz energy, five hertz and below, from an earthquake somewhere on the globe, and my washing machine was running. <laughs> uh huh my washing machine is going to produce vibrations on the seismogram that are much higher frequency, you know, probably tens of hertz, maybe even 100 hertz. Mm-hmm. I can decrease the amount of that signal that makes it through by applying a low-pass filter. Okay. Or if I were somebody that was studying vibration of washing machines... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the earthquake is my nuisance. Get rid of those pesky earthquakes. So I would apply a high-pass filter. I would get rid of that low stuff, and I would keep the high frequencies. Or I could apply what's called a band-pass filter, or band-stop, either way, which says I just want or just don't want this one narrow range of frequencies. Right. Mm -hmm. So you guys in seismology have applied this stuff to yourselves now, right? Because not only... I mean, used to, you know, you would filter out everything but the earthquake, but now there's all this passive business because it's so easy to store all these terabigas of data <laughs> that <laughs> that you just get rid of that stuff and look at those ambient signals now, right, too, huh? Yeah, so there's a lot of ambient noise tomography is a whole field where we're digitizing ground motion at 100 hertz or so, hundreds of places. And so, yeah, we can filter out all those... Uh, normal modes of the earth and all that low frequency stuff and just look at the noise that's turns out correlated across the globe that's awesome like solid earth tides and stuff it's cool yeah so uh, you can apply filters this filters are what your stereo is doing uh filters they they play a lot of roles again in (laughs) in electronics you're always filtering you know the one thing that we really for low frequency people, like a lot of my instrumentation that I care about, uh, 60 hertz, which is the frequency of AC power coming out of your wall, is always a really bright line on our spectrograms. Because, I mean, it's everywhere, right? Your house yeah. is, there are antennas in your walls radiating 60 hertz. It's horrendous. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so we always apply filters to cut that out of our signal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the exact mechanics of the filters in terms of how sharp are they, how good are they at attenuating that component and not touching the stuff you care about. Uh, that goes 
real deep. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about how I, you know, usually let Audacity run like if I have my ceiling fan on so I can filter that out. You know, I let it run by itself without anything else so I can filter that out and how that doesn't always work real well. Yeah, and so it's what kind of filter are you using? How sharp is it? Uh, is it applied in what's called a zero phase way? Uh, yeah, it gets it gets ugly. And there have been papers that have been retracted and papers that should have been retracted uh, <laughs> because they interpreted what turned out to be filtering artifacts. Oh, ouch. That's ouch. So, yeah, you got to know what you're doing with filtering uh-huh. or things can go bad quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. But I mean, it's used a lot for, uh, you know, electronics, uh, analyzing vibration, analyzing motion, uh, cleaning up video, noisy audio, pretty much, again, everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really, yeah, that's interesting. It seems um, kind of intuitive to me, shockingly. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's really intuitive until you actually dig into the math. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's not unintuitive then. It's just It's harder. just dirty, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. But it's it's really nice. Once once you get comfortable walking between these two domains, mm-hmm. it's really nice to be able to converse in both. And, you know, that a lot of the computers, so they don't perform the strict Fourier transform. Uh, it's formulated with continuous integrals, okay. which does not work with data that we're sampling at discrete points in time. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the most popular algorithm is the fast Fourier transform, or the FFT, mm-hmm. which was made famous by Cooley and Tukey. Okay. Uh, so you have to hear it called the Cooley-Tukey algorithm. It is the full Fourier transform, there are some subsets of it, like the discrete cosine transform, which is actually what gets implemented to compress MP3s and JPEGs. Oh, they just use okay. the cosine terms. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And so listener Dave in Slack actually sent us a paper that we're going to talk about. Uh, not not this show, but we're going to talk about it. <laughs> uh, and start talking about the normal modes of the Earth, which is going to be a show. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, this is exciting. Because as it turns out, you can also represent a wave as a combination of what's called the harmonics or the normal modes of a body. Okay, yeah. So if you take a string, it has various modes that we'll talk about on that show. But (laughs) you can describe any wave on that string as a combination of just those normal modes. So a vast subset of every sine and cosine imaginable. Ah, okay. Uh, It also works for the Earth. That's cool. And so you could compute a seismogram using just combinations of normal modes of the Earth. That's awesome. We don't do that because it's much slower than the current methods we use. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's pretty neat, though. Uh, But if you care about things like normal modes, that is essentially what you're doing. Uh, So there is some special subsets when you start talking about actual, not an arbitrary waveform, but this is a wave that exists in a physical media, mm-hmm. we can apply some extra constraints to the problem. That's pretty neat. I can't wait for that one. 
Yeah, I don't know how we're going to stay out of the math on that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but we did a good job of it this time, I think. <laughs> Envision, if you will, a uh, a beach ball diagram of. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that one's going to be. Um... Oh man, just looking at the Wikipedia page of normal mode, there's some pretty stellar graphics going on. That's pretty mathy. So yeah. Yeah, and if folks are looking for it, so there are, I linked in the Slack, uh, a pretty good description of normal modes, but uh, there are several seismology books, if you're interested in seismology, that are great intro books. Uh, Peter Shearer has an intro to seismology book that I like very much. Uh, if you want a, a slightly different take, uh, there is a Stein and Y session has a seismology book. I think both of these run around $90 because they are textbooks. Uh, they are great to start from. All seismology is based on strain in Iraq as a wave <laughs> goes through it. And they take you through this entire process. It's, they're really nice books if you're interested. Did you use them in class or do you just know of them? Uh, I used one of them in class. I read the other one okay. because, yeah. Yeah, uh, you can't you can't ever have enough seismology books. The the, the classic, uh, again, the, the the holy text of seismology is Aki and Richards' quantitative uh -huh. seismology. Uh, that probably by page three you're in some pretty complicated tensor math. So uh, <laughs> you got to strap in for that one, uh, or just get drunk, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I always did before my uh, partial differential <laughs> equation test. Yep. <laughs> yeah well yeah pdes are special until you're used to them they are exactly <laughs> so well, that, this is an excellent uh soiree into the frequency domain yeah so i i hope mike that these two shows answered your question finally well they taught of... they taught me something if they didn't teach mike anything else <laughs> <laughs> Uh, of sort of what ways are and why they're useful and why you hear so many people going on about them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. This was good. Yeah. Well, now for something totally different. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I mean, I don't know if this is totally different. I mean, complex math, lots of assumptions, <laughs> really ugly, <laughs> you know, toddler play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, listener Daryl sent this in, specifically aimed at me and my uh, newborn. <laughs> and this is in the Journal of Infant Behavior and Development. And the article is The Influence of the Number of Toys in the Environment on Toddler's Play by Doc et al. And uh, this was really interesting. And I think I ran this by a bunch of parents uh, in general. So it seems like a pretty obvious thing, but it's, there's some science behind, you know, do you give your kid a lot of toys or a little toy? Because how they play with them actually makes a difference later on in their behavior. Yeah. And this is one of those papers that I read it and I said, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I never, ever would have thought to ask this question. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I talked actually quite a bit with, um, one of my best friends is a, well, she was a early childhood development teacher and now she's teaching first grade. So she talked 
on and on about this <laughs> and the importance of it and the importance is that, you know, if you present an infant, and in this case they were using um, 18 to 30 month olds. Um, so if you present that toddler with a toy, how the toddler plays with it will help them develop these social skills that they need later on, you know, particularly attention. And so um, when you're a baby a lot of your focus is on these external stimuli, right? And things that you can see, people that are talking to you. And then as you move into toddlerhood, you know, you start to develop deeper skills like attention and things like this and these sort of internal, you know, drivers and how you play is a big deal on how you develop. Right. I mean, eventually you learn how to ignore mom yelling at you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> I'd say that happens before 18 months. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> so this is, that they took these children, they would schedule two different sessions, uh, a decent time apart. And at one session, they would have four toys that they could play with. And at the other session, they would have 16 toys that they could play with. And what they saw was when you had 16 toys, the attention shifted a lot there were more instances i'm going to pick up this thing and play with it then i'm going to put it down and play with this thing versus deep play learning you know playing with how can i manipulate this how can i do different things with it right and then that's the from my um just verbal sort of survey of people who do this sort of thing the how many different things can I do with it is the important thing. So you've got this one toy and you play with it maybe like it's supposed to, and I'm doing air quotes that you can't see, supposed to be played with. Um, <laughs> but then if you get involved in deeper play, which is using that toy creatively, either in a manner it's not, not that it's not supposed to be, but then not that it was intended to be used for, you know, helps to develop this creative process and then it also helps and I guess I didn't really think about this and until I read this it helps in developing your attentiveness because you've been focusing on this toy for long enough that you've already played with it like it's meant to be played with and now you start playing with it in unintended ways which just goes to further deepen that creativity but also your attention span which it says is a huge deal and actually plays out you know, later on in life, those connections you're making as a baby, which having an eight-year-old, I can totally say this is true, you know, follow you later on in life. And this attention span thing was really interesting to me because it seems like even as adults, we have a lot of problems paying attention to anything because of all the stimuli. And this was just sort of quantified in this study. Yeah. So, I mean, is it largest and loudest or do you get into a state of deep work when you're an adult? Right. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, loved, I loved the quote in here that there was one instance of destructive play where they had to intervene. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. I hope the mom that was reading this was like, yeah, that was my kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought it was also interesting, too, is that they picked the toys based on apparently there is a whole set of how you organize toys, you know, like what do they fall into educational or 
whatever. So they picked these toys to fall into these different, you know, educational toys or vehicular toys, stuff like that. Pretend toys, action toys. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And battery-operated was a separate distinction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was no more than one battery-operated toy, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because those are the worst. (laughs) My daughter has... Those are the toys that are accidentally maliciously destroyed. (laughs) Exactly, accidentally maliciously. (laughs) My daughter has a little jumper thing, and there's like a little keyboard on it, and she can punch it with her feet, and then you can later move it up so she can punch it with her hands. And I've never put the batteries in it. My son's always like, aren't you going to put batteries in that? Nope. Nope. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> yeah. I'm good with it I've, like it is. I have a feeling eventually when when I have a child that there will be some toys where the soldering <laughs> iron will come out for the speakers to be disconnected. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but th- there was a lot of you know different metrics in here. So how many seconds, how many toys... Uh, all of these other things, but I was shocked by how many toys the average American toddler has. God, and the amount of money per child. Like, I was pretty mad at myself because I did the calculation before going on to the very next sentence where they had already done the calculation. Right. (laughs) Of, like, the number, the amount of toys per child. It was ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> like, I think they said that it was $3 billion were spent on toddler toys last yeah, year. And, and so a paper by Arnold in 2012 said that when they walked into a home, there was an average of 139 toys visible. And most homes had between 100 and 250. Oh. So I want, I, want to, I want to see this paper because I want to know how they... It, I. I got from this that they sort of lumped like Legos. They lumped together as Legos, right? Is that how you Yeah, I would that? think so. Okay. Yeah, because I was like, well, if you're going to do that, well, sure. But my God, that's But the, I mean, the average family, it's $240 on toys and games a year uh, with grandparents <laughs> spending about $500 a year on their grandchildren. I thought that was a great metric. Yeah. So that's like $1,000 worth of toys every year. That is crazy. And then, you know, you already said that you were shocked at how much the U.S. spends. This is crazy. This stat kind of makes me sick. It says the U.S. represents 3.1% of the world's children, but 40% of the toy market. Yeah. Oh, what are we doing? <laughs> terrible (laughs) um but they do suggest something which i think that i don't know if lots of parents have learned but hopefully and definitely um child care providers that i've talked to have learned this trick is that you know you just take away toys out of sight out of mind is exactly how it is and so then you can start a rotation of toys and so you're not overstimulating your child um And another thing they talked about in here, which was not in the purview of this study, but it referenced other studies that talk about these background things that take kids' attention away, right? So if you've got more than, I think they said it was roughly like the kids on average in the 16 toy group touched eight toys, right? Right, yeah, it's eight point something. Yeah, Um, and so they say that, you know, any more than that and you're producing all this stimulus that takes them away from this deeper play, 
Um, and they said that TV going in the background does the same thing. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating because so in the in the group with four toys, it was three point something was here. So they engaged with more of the toys for longer. But the, the TV was like having, you know, gobs of toys around. Right, exactly. And this doesn't surprise me at all. I'm very anti-television and I'm super crazy hippie about it. Like I, I hate the TV. I'm totally a burn your TV type of person. Um, <laughs> not to get on my high horse <laughs> slash soapbox, <laughs> but this was really well, it was really cool for me to see because it was like, oh, I guess I never really thought about why I hated it. But that is why, because I can't ever do anything, you know, when it's on. And this is why I can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, our TV is non except for our dog sometimes uh, when we're not here, <laughs> basically, or when we're playing Mario Kart. Uh, how, how do you but... know what Mitzi likes to watch? How do you, did you ask her? Uh, we, we seem to have good luck with me TV. Oh, okay. So the the older <laughs> older shows, uh, but <laughs> that's really on for you, John. Quit trying to act like you're not seventy years old. <laughs> yeah, I know. But uh, but yeah, when I'm doing work, I unless it is a very copy paste kind of monotonous thing, I generally don't have Netflix going or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, I, need I can't do classical it. music or music without words. Yes. Mm-hmm. And even then, because my go-to is always Jurassic Park, and even then I get really wrapped up in the music. So it really has to be, yeah, something mundane. No great symphonies for me while I'm working. Well, you know, I mean, this time of year, everybody's getting to the point where they can tune out all the Christmas songs by now. Yes, so. that is true. <laughs> That's true. It just takes practice. Practice, yeah. kids. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, this is a super great, uh, this is a super great send in for Fun Paper Friday. So thanks, Daryl. I'm totally going to give this to my parents. So hopefully they don't buy the kids a ton of toys for Christmas. And yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, if you have a fun paper that you would like to send or statistics on how long your own child plays with various <laughs> toys or anything else, including suggestions for future t-shirts or whatever else you would like to see in terms of swag to help support the show. <laughs> uh, we would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Yeah, send us that. Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin, and John is at geo underscore Lehman. Don't forget to blink his Christmas lights. And uh, we're always hanging out in the Slack chat room, the Software Underground, on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Thank you.